You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Hi, this is Amanda, and you're listening to the Art of History podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Our story this week features a painting that was new to me when I recently discovered it on the Metropolitan Museum of Arts website, so I am really excited to share with you what I have learned, although the subject of today's piece is probably one that you are familiar with. If you're new to the show, the premise here is pretty simple. Each episode, I select a work of art that can tell us a story from the past. Today we are looking at a painting by the French artist Jules Bastien Lepage titled simply Joan of Arc, and it's from 1879. At this time, you can go ahead and pull it up in a Google search, and I will also be posting it over on Instagram at Art of History Podcast. While you're there, might I recommend just hitting that follow button, as it will only save you time for future episodes. For right now, I want you to forget that I just told you this painting is called Joan of Arc. A really useful thing when seeing a painting for the first time is to only think about what you're looking at right in front of you before we dive into the story. So let's look closely at the canvas together first, and then we'll look at the bigger picture. So what do we see? In the foreground or front of the painting is a young woman dressed in peasant clothes, a long brown skirt and a blue bodice tied loosely over a white shirt. She is barefoot and is standing on the scrubby yet vibrant grass of a cottage yard. She leans against a narrow tree and her left hand grasps a hold of a branch. Is she perhaps trying to steady herself or is this just an absent-minded gesture? Behind the girl is a spinning loom and a small stool which appears to have been knocked on its side. The loom still has spun wool wrapped around the bottom of it, so we can infer that this girl has just abandoned her work and her attention is now somewhere else entirely. She gazes out the right side of the canvas, somewhere beyond the yard and the small copse of trees that she stands in. Her cheeks are flushed bright red and her piercingly blue eyes are wide and looking slightly upwards. She seems to be craning her neck to see something in the distance. Her expression comes off as expectant, fixed unwaveringly on something that we, as the viewer, cannot see. In the very background of the painting, at the end of a narrow dirt path, there is a stone cottage. It has lattice, windows, it's very cute. It is also pretty unremarkable, just some beige walls and a red roof, and behind it are an equally modest fenced garden and a few neighboring buildings. Much more captivating, though, are the three semi-transparent figures that hang in the air between the cottage and the young woman. Their features are somewhat obscured by tree leaves, so as you look at the painting, you find yourself maneuvering to get a clear look at them. 
Just stylistically, they are also painted pretty minimally with feathery brushstrokes and light washes of color, so they almost blend into the bricks of the cottage. It's hard to know where these figures start and end, but we can still tell that they are two women and a man. The woman on the far left of this grouping is bent forward and she has her head bowed into her hands, either in prayer or in supplication. The woman next to her, in the middle of the group, gazes straight forward, with her hands clasped gracefully at her heart. It took me a couple tries to say that. She gazes towards the peasant girl, as does the man beside her. I would say that he is the most striking of these three floating figures, where the women are dressed in gauzy pink and blue fabrics that envelop them like cocoons. This man is clad in a golden suit of armor. It looks very solid. All three of these figures have soft, angelic features and have gold halos above their heads. The women's are delicate, thin bands, while the man's is a solid disc of gold behind his head. This element of the supernatural is slightly at odds with the otherwise natural feel of the painting. The artist has rendered the scene with an overwhelming amount of detail, even in the most mundane parts. The lush greenery and painstakingly rendered domestic atmosphere emphasize that this is, despite the three figures, not merely a symbolic or an allegorical depiction, but rather the level of detail invites us to step into the moment and understand it on a human level. If you were to go see this painting in person, that sensation would be further emphasized by the fact that the canvas is about nine feet tall and eight feet wide. No, I'm sorry eight feet tall and nine feet wide. Uh, so in person, the girl would be just about life size. A canvas of that size might make you feel that you could simply step into the scene with her and ask her what has so enraptured her. As the title of the painting probably suggested to you, this girl that we are looking at in her peasant clothes and bare feet is none other than Joan of Arc, the Maid of Orléans and the Catholic Saint. And this portrayal of Joan is one of the more atypical ones out there. It's much more common to see her rendered in metal armor or chainmail as the patron saint of France. Equally common are depictions of her tied to a stake before being burned and becoming a martyr. But I am getting ahead of myself. The artist of this painting, after all, focuses on the very beginning of Joan's story, so that's where we will start as well. Much of what we know about Joan of Arc's life comes from her own testimony, which, spoiler alert, occurred during her trial for heresy when she was about 19 years old. At the time of Joan's birth in the year 1412, Europe was 75 years deep in the Hundred Years' War. Obviously, one could spend years examining the intricacies of this conflict, which actually persisted for 116 years, but I will do my best to get us up to speed so that the stage is set for Joan to enter. The Hundred Years' War had begun around the year 1337. Historians disagree on when exactly it started, but it was understood as an inheritance dispute over the French throne. At that time, England's King Edward III claimed that he was also the rightful King of France, a claim that was based on the fact that England's royal family was descended from William the Conqueror, who, in 1066, had left Normandy, part of France, conquered England, and crowned himself king. Edward III invaded France three times during his 14th century reign and established English control of much of northern France. But after his death, there came a tug of war where French armies would regain some of that territory and then noble families would pick and choose which cause they would support. 
As a result, trade was badly impacted and the French peasant class was taxed heavily, which caused several major uprisings. France suffered the heaviest losses of the early war years, both at home and abroad, as it were. Its population became absolutely decimated, despite periods of relative peace that arose from time to time. Aside from all the invasions, infighting, and civil wars, there were also crop failures and bouts of the Black Death to contend with, meaning that France's population was ultimately reduced by as much as two-thirds. The year that Joan was born, the King of France was a guy called King Charles VI, who suffered from periods of mental illness that made him pretty much unable to rule. The so-called insanity of Charles VI led to a civil war among French nobles over who should succeed him, namely instigated by the king's cousin, John the Fearless, the Duke of Burgundy. The Burgundians, as his faction were known, would ultimately enter an alliance with the English, aiming to disinherit the most prominent and obvious choice to succeed the king. This lucky individual was Charles VI's 11th child and 5th son, the Dauphin also named Charles. Yes, you heard that right. The word for the heir to the French throne, Dauphin, also meant dolphin. This was because originally French heirs were given the county of Viennois to rule, and the coat of arms that came along with that job featured, you guessed it, a dolphin. In 1415, England's King Henry V saw an opening amidst all of this French bickering, and he invaded. A victory for the English at the Battle of Agincourt, where Henry's longbow archers slaughtered nearly half of France's knights, enabled him to retake Normandy and conquer the city of Rouen. However, Henry's ultimate goal, of course, was to conquer all of France and become king of both England and France. This is when England formed that alliance with the Duke of Burgundy, who recognized Henry as the king and began to conquer large tracts of land in his name. In 1420, Henry signed the Treaty of Troy with the wife of the Mad King Charles, Isabeau of Bavaria. Under this agreement, she disowned her son, the Dauphin Charles, rendering him illegitimate and unable to succeed his father. Henry was subsequently nominated as Charles' successor, and the French king's daughter, Catherine of Valois, was married off to the English King Henry, making any children that they might have the undisputed heirs to the French throne. If you like to keep track of things with charts, I understand, and I encourage you to do so at this point. A number of vague prophecies then began to circulate France, all of which mentioned a young maid who would deliver the nation from the English. These prophecies were attributed to several sources, including St. Bede, B-E-D-E, the Venerable, (laughs) Euglid of Hungary, and Merlin himself. Some of these prophecies spoke of a maid who was supposed to come from, quote, the borders of Lorraine. There was also a version that said that France would be, quote, ruined through a woman and afterwards restored by a virgin. Enter Joan of Arc, who, amidst all of this, was born in the village of Domremy. This town sat in the Vosges, a mountain range in the northeast of France. It was near the border between the French Duchy of Bar and the Duchy of Lorraine in the Holy Roman Empire. The town has since been renamed in Joan's honor, so today you'll find it on the map as Domremy la Pucelle, after her later nickname, La Pucelle, or The Maid. Joan's village remained loyal to Charles VI and the Dauphin, despite the fact that it was deep in lands controlled by the Burgundians. Remember, that's the French faction loyal to the English. During Joan's childhood, several raids had occurred in the village, and on one occasion it was partially burned. 
Still, the house where she was born has been preserved since the 15th century, and you can visit it today. It sits on a hillside next to the church of San Remy, where Joan would have attended Catholic masses. Joan's parents were peasant farmers named Jacques d'Arc and Isabelle Romain. They owned about 50 acres of land, which comprised pastures, cropland, and part of a forest. As well as being a farmer, her father Jacques was also Domremy's doyen, a village official who collected taxes and headed up the local defensive watch. Her mother, Isabel, was a devout Catholic, as admittedly most people were at the time, um, but she was a little special because she had been on a religious pilgrimage. Her surname, Rome, was not a family name, but actually designated any person who had made a pilgrimage to Rome or another religiously special location. It was Isabel who instilled Joan with a deep appreciation for the Catholic faith and the saints. Despite all of the turmoil raging on a grand scale around her, Joan actually had a fairly normal childhood. Normal meant for a girl in the 15th century that she could not read or write. Instead of attending school, she helped out on the family farm. Tradition holds that she was a shepherdess for her father's flock of sheep, but apparently this was not the case, and Joan disliked it when people assumed this of her. She did carry out her share of smaller farm chores, and her favorite of these was spinning wool by her mother's side. This is what the Joan of the painting seems to have just left off doing. In 1425, when Joan was about 13, she began to hear voices and experience visions. One day, as she was in her father's garden, she saw St. Michael the Archangel, St. Catherine of Alexandria, and St. Margaret appear to her. Catherine and Margaret were two saints that Joan apparently regularly prayed to. St. Catherine was a 4th century princess and a scholar who had become a Christian around the age of 14. She then converted hundreds of people to Christianity and was then martyred around the age of 18 at the hands of the Emperor Maxentius. St. Margaret was the daughter of a pagan priest and was nursed by a Christian woman after her mother died. Margaret was subsequently disowned by her father, adopted by her nurse, and lived with her until a Roman governor asked to marry her. Part of his request was also a demand that she renounce Christianity. Upon Margaret's refusal, she was tortured, and during that torture, she is said to have been, quote, swallowed by Satan in the shape of a dragon, from which she escaped alive when the cross she carried irritated the dragon's innards. The church officials who later recognized Margaret as a saint said that you should probably take that last part as just a legend. Although if you go to her Wikipedia page, you can see an awesome depiction of her beating a demon with a hammer. Both Catherine and Margaret were said to have consecrated their virginity to God, something that could have moved the young Joan to consider them her patronesses. When they appeared to her, Joan later recalled, their heads were crowned in a rich and precious fashion with beautiful crowns. I'm pulling a lot of this information from the transcript that was made at Joan's trial, by the way, during which she was questioned at length about the appearance of the saints and everything that would come afterwards. So when you hear quotes throughout the episode, know that there's a 99% chance that that's where it came from, and it's the closest thing to Joan of Arc's own words that we will ever get. The first saint who appeared to Joan, though, was St. Michael the Archangel, and he was not alone, but was accompanied by, quote, many angels from heaven. Asked later if she had actually physically seen these saints and the angels before her, Joan would answer, quote, I saw them with my bodily eyes as well as I see you, and when they left me I wept, and I fain would have had them take me with them too. 
The saints first told Joan only to be good and go to church, but they would visit her several more times. They later instructed her to go to the aid of the Dauphin Charles and take him to Rheims for his coronation, and then help France regain control from England. Remember, the Dauphin Charles had been disinherited, with the collusion of his mother, by the Treaty of Troyes back in 1420. Both King Henry V and King Charles of France had died by the time that Joan was receiving her visions, and Henry's named successor as both King of England and France was his infant son, Henry VI. Meanwhile, the French Dauphin Charles, now a young man of 19, claimed that he was still the rightful King of France. He had not yet, however, been crowned at Rheims Cathedral, the ancient site of coronation for all of France's kings. It was a big deal that he go there to be anointed so that God would approve of his reign. The fighting over the French throne continued intermittently, but the Dauphin's armies lost battle after battle and were growing discouraged. In 1428, the English began a siege of the fortified town of Orléans. This was one of the few remaining cities still loyal to the French king, and it held a strategic position along the Loire River, making it the key to invading southward into the area still controlled largely by the Dauphin. Many believed that it was only a matter of time until Orléans fell, though, and that only God could save France now. Over the next three years, Joan's visions and the voices that she heard became more urgent about the mission that God wanted her to fulfill. She believed that God commanded her to rescue Orléans from the English, take the Dauphin to Rheims to be crowned, and then lead his armies to drive the English from French soil. To that end, in 1428, Joan asked a cousin to take her to the nearby town of Vancouver, where she petitioned the garrison commander for an armed escort to take her to the French royal court. Joan told this commander, a man named Robert de Baudricourt, that the Dauphin must not take any risks for the time being, because in the middle of Lent the following year, 1429, God was going to send him help. It's possible that at this time, Joan referred back to the French prophecies, which suggested that a maid from the northeast of France would be France's salvation. But regardless, the commander derided Joan, telling her cousin to box her ears and send her home. Joan did return home to Domremy, as she was told, but English forces came to town soon after and burned much of it, including the church beside her family home. Nevertheless, in early January 1429, Joan left her village for the last time, determined that she, quote, must be at the king's side. She apparently told one of the first soldiers to follow her that, quote, there will be no help for the kingdom if not from me. Although I would rather have remained spinning at my mother's side, yet must I go and must I do this thing, for my lord wills that I do so. While meeting with Robert de Baudricourt this second time, Joan told him about a military defeat that the French had suffered on February 12th near Orléans. This was news to the commander, as it would be several more days until messengers would arrive to report it. After those messengers did arrive, de Baudricourt became convinced of Joan's divine appointment and agreed to escort her to a meeting with the Dauphin. In late February 1429, she was finally off on her mission from God. I am going to take a little break, and when we come back, we will meet up with Joan on her journey to her destiny. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. 
Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When I was ready to start podcasting, I read all the articles I could find on how to get started, which equipment to use, and so on. The one thing they all had in common was recommending Anchor as the best tool for first-time podcasters to get going. If you haven't heard of Anchor, it really is the simplest way to make a podcast. It's from the folks at Spotify, and it comes with everything you could possibly need to record and edit right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can easily distribute your show on listening platforms like Spotify, of course, but also Apple and Google Podcasts and many more. You can also receive sponsorships with no minimum listenership required. It is truly everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, it's totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Okay, and we are back. Joan's journey to the town of Chinon to meet the Dauphin would take about 10 days. It was at this point that Joan began to dress in men's clothing, and she cut her hair short. Her short hairstyle would actually influence the later bobs of the 1920s. The reasoning for dressing as a man or a boy was that as a young woman of now 17 years old, Joan would have to be living among men-at-arms and the townspeople of Vancouver thought it was more modest and safe for her to wear pants and armor like the rest of them. Also, her favorite saint, St. Margaret, was said to have dressed in pants as well when she was endangered. Robert de Baudricourt also gave her a sword. Joan apparently did not need to be worried about preserving her honor, as the soldiers accompanying her regarded her, quote, as if she had been an angel. They later said that they had been in awe of her, and the other knights who would interact with her felt the same. When Joan arrived at the royal court of the Dauphin Charles, there were two or three days when the king's advisors would not let her see him. When she finally was allowed entry to the royal court, according to legend, the Dauphin had secretly hidden himself among his courtiers. Joan immediately walked right up to him, even though she had never seen him before, and when he denied that he was the king, she told him that she knew who he was. There is the king, said Charles, pointing to a different, richly dressed noble. Joan apparently replied, no, fair sire, you are he. God of his grace give you long life, O dear and gentle Dauphin. My name is Jean the Pucelle, or Joan the Maid. The king of heaven has sent me to bring you and your kingdom help. They then met privately, and while the details of this conversation are, even today, completely unknown, at her trial Joan hinted that she had provided Charles with information that only a messenger from God would know, including the specifics of her visions with the saints. Charles decided at this point that he would have a Catholic commission of inquiry test Joan's truthfulness and her virginity. The belief was apparently that a witch or another's form of evildoer could not be a virgin. The commission declared Joan to be, quote, of irreproachable life, a good Christian possessed of the virtues of humility, honesty, and simplicity. 
Notably, though, those church officials did not offer an opinion on the issue of Joan's divine inspiration, namely the visions and the voices. Instead, they told the Dauphin that there was a favorable presumption that Joan's mission had indeed come from God. Finally, the churchmen asked Joan for a sign from God that she was acting at his command. She replied, take me to Orléans and I will show you signs proving why I was sent. This was enough to convince the Dauphin, and he decided to put Joan to the test and see if her presence could help end the siege of Orléans. Charles did not plan to have Joan act as a military leader, though, but rather as a motivating symbol or a kind of mascot. She was given a crash course in military skills and strategy, and Charles gave her a white horse and a suit of armor. He also offered her a sword, but Joan's voices told her that behind an altar of St. Catherine de Fierbois, near Chinon, there was an old sword with five crosses on the blade buried in the earth. St. Catherine of Fierbois was the patroness of captives taken by the English and Burgundians, and that sword was the one that Joan was supposed to wear. A man was sent to this church, and he found the sword in the exact place that Joan had described to him. She also had a large banner made that she said the voices of the saints had described to her. This banner featured an image of Jesus amidst a field of golden fleur-de-lis, the lily flower emblem of French royalty. Joan arrived at the besieged city of Orléans on the 29th of April in 1429. She stated that during the ensuing battle, she carried her banner and never killed anyone, and that she preferred her banner 40 times better than a sword. The army was always directly commanded by a nobleman, but many of those nobles later said that Joan had a profound effect on their decision-making, and that they often accepted the advice that she gave them. Understandably so, too, because they believed that her advice came from God. By the time she arrived at Orléans, the English had encircled the city with a series of forts. Joan and the army passed through a gap in these forts and entered right into the city. The next day, she sent the English an ultimatum, which she had dictated to the English forces, demanding that they surrender and, quote, depart in God's name for your own country. If you refuse this, I am a captain of war, and wherever I find your men in France, I will force them to leave. If they refuse to obey, I will have them all killed. I am sent by God, the King of Heaven, to chase you one and all from France. Joan may have been a 17-year-old girl and a virgin, but she was definitely forceful when the situation called for it. Thus, the battle became a religious conflict and not just a territorial one. Over the next few days, Joan led the French soldiers who were attacking the English forts, often taking off her helmet so that they could see her. On the last day of fighting at the main fort, she was wounded by an arrow in the neck and shoulder. She left the battle to have it tended to, but then returned to push for final victory. The English, who had been sure that they had killed her, were shocked and began murmuring that she must be a witch or possessed by the devil, or I suppose both? <laughs> Nevertheless, the following day, the English retreated from Orléans, ending the siege. Many people interpreted the lifting of the siege as the sign from God that Joan had promised. From there, Joan had one job left to do, take the Dauphin to Rheims to be crowned. This was easier said than done, as the city of Rheims was deep within English-controlled territory. To get there, Joan and her men mounted quick attacks on a string of English strongholds, one after the other. Joan led all of the attacks that she ordered, and again she attested that she never personally killed anyone. Sometimes, she says, she wept when an enemy fell in battle. 
Along the way to Rems, Joan and her army liberated several towns that had been previously held by the English. The French saw her as an angel from God delivering them from their enemy, and the English feared her and became more and more convinced that she was a witch. Joan led the French into Rems on July 16, 1429, and the Dauphin was anointed as King Charles VII at the cathedral the following day. Joan, holding her banner, stood beside him. After the ceremony, the legend goes that Joan wept at his feet, and all of the knights who followed her also wept tears of joy. The newly crowned king also asked what reward he could give Joan, and she apparently asked for nothing except that her village, Domremy, should be exempt from paying taxes. Her family was also made into a noble family and was granted a coat of arms. The arms featured a crown being held up by a golden sword, flanked by two fleur-de-lis. I think the symbolism here is fairly self-explanatory. From here, although technically Joan's mission from God, as it had been related to her by her visions, was complete, she still advised the king to go on and capture Paris, which was then held by the Duke of Burgundy. But Charles decided to negotiate with him instead. The resulting truce lasted all of six months, and the Duke of Burgundy actually used that time to strengthen his defenses in and around Paris. Joan and her men traveled to the town of Compiègne in May 1430 to help defend Paris against a siege by both the English and Burgundian forces. On May 23rd, her unit attempted to attack the Burgundian camp just north of Compiègne, but they were ambushed and Joan was captured. She was first imprisoned in a seven-story tower from which she made several escape attempts. On one occasion, she actually jumped from the tower and landed safely on the soft earth of a dry moat below. The Burgundians, probably not wanting to be bothered any longer, sold Joan to the English for 10,000 livres, and she was taken to the English-occupied city of Rouen. King Charles, who she had helped get on the throne, did nothing to rescue her. After her defeat, Joan had lost some of her air of invincibility in the eyes of the king, even though she had upheld all of her promises to him. In Rouen, the English agreed to have Joan trialed for heresy, which is a word for acting or thinking in ways contrary to Catholic Church teachings. So by labeling her as a heretic, and also as a witch, the English had an excuse to simultaneously get rid of the girl who had humiliated them in battle, and undermine the claim of Charles VII to the throne. If Joan was a heretic, after all, her mission from God wasn't really valid, and the king had no right getting crowned in the first place. These charges would pave the way for the English to crown the son of King Henry V, remember Henry VI, as monarch of France and win the Hundred Years' War. It's also important to note that the English believed in witchcraft in ways that the French people of this time didn't. Joan was tried in a French Inquisition court, but it's safe to assume that if that didn't get her executed, they would have had her transported to England and had her burned as a witch. A large group of men, including a bishop appointed by the Duke of Burgundy, questioned Joan at her trial. Nearly all of them were Frenchmen who had sided with the English. Two notaries transcribed the trial sessions and wrote up a summary at the end of each day. This transcript still exists today, as I mentioned earlier, and it's how we know a lot of what Joan thought and said about her religious experience. Joan agreed to be truthful while she was being questioned, but she also refused to relate specific things that the saints had revealed to her in her visions. Many of her answers to the court's complex theological questions astounded the court, particularly as she had no formal schooling and could not read or write. 
One of these questions asked Joan whether she knew she was in God's grace. This question was known by her inquisitors to be a trap. Church doctrine held that no one could be certain of being in God's grace, so if Joan had answered yes, then she would have committed heresy. If she answered no, she was not in God's grace, then she would have de facto confessed her own guilt. Joan's answer was, quote, If I am not, may God put me there, and if I am, may God so keep me. I should be the saddest creature in the world if I knew I were not in his grace. The entire transcript is available online, and it is kind of delightful to read. Joan really does come off as inspired. She uses her judge's words against them, redirects questions that she doesn't want to answer, and even uses sarcasm. At one point, when a church official with a thick regional accent asked her which languages her voices spoke, she replied that they spoke French better than he did. The heresy trial lasted for three months. In the end, unable to get Joan to incriminate herself, the Inquisitors drew up a list of 70 charges against her. These included being a witch, an enchantress, and a false prophet, cruelly thirsting for human blood, failing to submit entirely to the authority of the Catholic Church, personally communicating with God through her voices rather than through the Church, and cross-dressing. All of these were acts of blasphemy or disrespect against God. The court concluded that Joan's voices were either imagined or came from, quote, a spirit of evil, and they condemned her to be burned as a heretic unless she denounced all of her crimes against the church. Joan, who, remember, could not read or write, was apparently given this document listing all of the charges against her, which she signed as a sign of recanting or denouncing those crimes. If you look at her signature, of which there are, I think, three examples, it does appear that this was written by someone who didn't know how to hold a pen and was just learning to sign her name. Nevertheless, this signature saved Joan from execution. She was instead sentenced to life imprisonment. I know, shocking, right? One of the conditions for Joan to be spared from the flames was for her to abandon her male clothing and return to wearing skirts. Cross-dressing was equivalent to heresy in the minds of these judges. According to later accounts, Joan had worn dresses as well as pants while she was on campaign, and had only gone back to wearing men's clothing while in prison because it enabled her to fasten her hose or her tights, her boots, and her shirt together. This deterred the guards from raping her. She was evidently afraid to give up this man's clothing while she was still imprisoned because a woman's dress offered her no protection. Remember how I mentioned the men who she had gone on campaign with viewed her as an angel and would never have dared assault her? That's why she went back to wearing dresses on occasion when she was on campaign. But a few days after her trial ended, Joan told an inquisitor that, quote, a great English lord had entered her prison and tried to take her by force. She probably resumed wearing men's attire as a defense against molestation, resulting in her being labeled as a relapsed heretic for the repeat offense of cross-dressing. Here's a spot where we can also tell that the charges against Joan were total bullshit. Analysis of medieval church doctrine reveals that cross-dressing would be evaluated based on context, and necessity, such as using clothing as protection against rape, was a permissible reason for wearing men's clothing. The fact that Joan's inquisitors apparently overlooked this fact just shows that her conviction was politically motivated more than anything else. And so, on May 30th, 1431, 
Joan was taken by English soldiers to the marketplace of Rouen. She was bound to a stake on a platform and asked two clergymen to hold a crucifix before her. Then, at the age of 19, she was set on fire. As she died, she repeatedly cried out to Jesus. Her ashes were then thrown into the nearby Seine River. It would take about another 22 years after Joan's death, but the end of the Hundred Years' War would eventually come. In 1450, King Charles VII, who Joan had helped get crowned, ordered an investigation, which was later backed by the Catholic Church, into her heresy conviction. In my opinion, this was the least he could do, but whatever. A church commission conducted a retrial, which re-examined the original trial transcript and took statements from eyewitnesses. At this time, and later forensic analysis also revealed that the original transcript had been heavily edited and doctored where it didn't show her judges in favorable lights. In 1456, the church cleared Joan of the heresy charge entirely. There was still a mystery then, and it persists today, about Joan and her visions and her voices. Many historians and scholars have tried to posthumously diagnose Joan with conditions ranging from epilepsy to migraines to full-blown schizophrenia, which would explain her hallucinations. One of these presented a theory that Joan's visions were caused by bovine tuberculosis as a result of drinking unpasteurized milk. In a lovely, very French response to this theory, the historian Régine Pernod once wrote that if drinking unpasteurized milk could produce such great benefits for the nation, then the modern French government should stop mandating the pasteurization of milk altogether. I, like many others, think it unlikely that Joan was experiencing some form of psychosis. I think that whatever the cause, she really did think that she was receiving visions from God. And not for nothing, I was raised Catholic myself, so these saint stories are kind of a dime a dozen. She described her visions as always being accompanied by a bright light, and sometimes by the sound of bells. So if anything, perhaps she suffered from migraines and interpreted them as visions? I don't know. God kind of works in mysterious ways, if you haven't heard. Some people have also pointed out that Joan was unlikely to have suffered from a mental illness as she gained the favor of the Dauphin, who quickly accepted her as legitimate. He would have been hypersensitive to the signs of mental illness and hypervigilant of any accusations of madness because his own father, King Charles VI, had been known as Charles the Mad. So much of France's instability and the succession crisis stemmed from his inability to rule soundly and cohesively. Joan was always noted for her shrewdness and her sharp mind, so much so that the retrial after her death made note that in her original trial, the judges had often, quote, turned from one question to another, changing about, but notwithstanding this, she answered prudently and evinced a wonderful memory. In 1920, Joan was canonized as a Catholic saint, and she is today the patron saint of France. There were actually plenty of arguments against making Joan a saint, including my favorite, which was that she launched the assault of Paris on the birthday of Mary, the mother of Jesus. How dare she? <laughs> Certainly, the almost five centuries between Joan's death and her canonization left room for her image to have evolved, and it became meaningful in different ways to different groups of people. So before I wrap this up, let's quickly look at why the world and the artist of today's piece viewed Joan the way that they did. 
From the time of her death, Joan was already an icon to the French, particularly amongst Catholics. The city of Orléans commemorated her death every year beginning in 1432, and three years later they added an annual religious play depicting her lifting the siege. By the 1500s, she was used as a symbol by the Catholic League, a group organized to combat the spread of Protestantism. The power of Joan's image was so strong that it was banned by French revolutionaries in the late 1700s since she had, inarguably, been a staunch supporter of the monarchy. It was actually the Emperor Napoleon who revived Joan's cult of personality and employed her image to support his nationalist cause. In an order he gave to erect a statue of Joan, he wrote, or probably directed someone to write, that the illustrious career of Joan of Arc proves that there is no miracle French genius cannot perform in the face of a threat against national freedom. By the 1870s, Joan was steadily becoming a more and more important figure in French art and culture. Following France's defeat in the Franco-Prussian War, which I know next to nothing about, so don't ask, the German Empire annexed Joan's birthplace of Lorraine. This was also the hometown of artist Jules Bastien Lepage, who, if you'll remember, painted today's piece. It was even more important than ever to have national heroes to invoke to keep French spirits up. The artist's painting of Joan, shown at her humble beginnings in her father's garden in Domremy, can be read as a fulfillment of that need. It's entirely possible that Bastien Lepage saw more personal parallels between himself and Joan of Arc as well. They had each come from a poor family near the province of Lorraine and left their rural lives behind in favor of a personal mission. Bastien Lepage went as far as to visit Joan's birthplace while laying out the painting, so it's safe to assume that he wanted to get things right. Still, he also kept the interest of his contemporary French audience in mind by deliberately giving the scene a timeless atmosphere. Joan is dressed in historically neutral peasant garb so that she is kind of a universal figure, and her surroundings remind us of that simple rustic upbringing. The painting Joan of Arc was exhibited at the 1880 Paris Salon, which was the official art exhibition of the Academy of Fine Arts in Paris. There, critics praised Bastien Lepage's use of pose and facial expression to convey Joan's spiritual awakening. They did also, however, note that the inclusion of the floating saints was kind of jarring in comparison with his otherwise naturalistic and true-to-life style choices. The French author Emile Zola felt that the artistic choices, quote, disrupted the naturalist unity of the subject. I personally feel that this is kind of the beauty of this painting. If the legends are true, Joan was just a normal girl growing up in a completely average setting. It was that incongruous element of the supernatural which ultimately drove her destiny and sealed her fate. Despite its deep significance to France, the painting was bought by American businessman Irwin Davies after the Salon in 1880, and it now resides at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, where you can find it in the European painting section. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, I learned a lot about Joan's story while researching for this week. Like many Catholics, I think I knew the broad strokes of the story and legend, but it was definitely interesting learning anew how much of the opposition to Joan's existence was based on sheer misogyny and some intricate political workings. If you do find yourself in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, please check out this painting. I am sure it is amazing in person. Thank you so much for listening. If you also learned something new, or if you have any questions or comments about this week's episode, I would love to hear from you. 
you can shoot me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at artofhistorypodcast, Twitter at arthistoricpod, and I continue to make royal history videos on TikTok at Matta of Fact. That's Matta, M-A-T-T-A, underscore of, underscore fact. If you're listening in a place that lets you rate and review this podcast, it would mean so much to me if you would take the time to do that as well. It's kind of hard to believe that this is my fourth episode, but I'm really starting to feel like I'm hitting my stride here, and I, just as a person, really love getting feedback, so I would love to hear from you. Thank you again so much for listening. Bye, everyone. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.